You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech, where we sell NFTs of recordings of all of our business meetings with people saying, you're on mute, over and over again, where we hold clubhouse rooms, which are rebroadcasts of Twitter spaces, which are live DJ sessions of wax cylinders of Thomas Edison saying, someday audio will be the big investment. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a music tech PR firm. Please join me in welcoming today's guest, Ed Vincent. He's the founder and CEO of Festival Pass. Nice to have you here, Ed. Hey, Dimitri. How are you? Glad to be here. I'm doing great. You're calling in from Austin, Texas. Is it warming up yet? It, it's an overcast day here, but uh, it is definitely warmer. I, I just moved to Austin about eight months ago from New York City. Spent 23 years there downtown. Wow. So it's a little bit of a difference and the weather is warmer. Yeah, well, cool. Well, great to have you on. And I'd like to just jump right in. Um, you're with Festival Pass. Let's, why don't you tell us what it is? Sure. So so every business has context. And uh, so what Festival Pass is, and then I can back into the why. Mm-hmm. Um, so what Festival Pass is, it's a, it's a global marketplace uh, for live events. We like to say to folks that understand a few other business models that it's Airbnb meets ClassPass for live events. Um, and uh, so, so what happens is consumers come in and they pay a monthly subscription fee uh, that ranges anywhere from 9 to $99 a month and they get credits and then they use those credits to go to thousands of live events. Well, that's cool. That's an interesting model. I like your description. Um, what's the origin story? Where, where did you come from and why did you start this? Sure. So I've been an entrepreneur for well over 20 years. I was a a banker, if you believe it, up until 1999, and then started my first e-commerce company, sold that in 2001. And then I had an agency through the 2000s. That's, uh, that's what kind of brought the live event world uh, into my excitement. Uh, we had about a 70-person agency uh, that was experiential marketing, and we would bring a lot of big brands into a lot of big events, big music events, um, tours, uh, f- film festivals. We helped launch uh, numerous film festivals and even owned one down in the Dominican Republic. Um, Moving forward from there, I had a SaaS business uh, in the franchise multi-unit space. We sold that in 2014. Uh, and then for the last five, six years, I've had a data business uh, in the uh, entertainment space. So um, a lot of big television clients. It was a consultancy and a software platform. Uh, folks like a and Networks, AMC Networks, Screen Vision Media that runs ads in, in the movie theaters. Uh, and dur- during that time... Um, There was a company that many people have heard of for the good or the bad called MoviePass. I'm not sure if your uh, audience has has heard of them. Uh, um, But what was interesting is uh, I was asked because of my my company's data experience to come in and help them understand all of the data of their over three and a half million subscribers. Um, So I acted as the interim chief data officer of MoviePass for a while. And while there, uh, I learned a lot about what to do and what not to do in building a subscription marketplace. Um, so taking a lot of those learnings and, and bringing a significant data background into it, I started to explore what uh, other industries that I was really interested in that, uh, that the, a good model could be applied to. Uh, and in that, in that time frame, I saw that the live uh, events industry, which is a $200 billion a year industry globally, um, was very fragmented, um, meaning that in the music space, a lot of people hear of the big guys like Live Nation and AEG, et cetera. Um, but on a global basis, um, they only represent a small fraction of the overall live event business. Um, so I saw a big opportunity to kind of take all of those disparate 
uh, event promoters, owners, distributors, um, and bring them all together within a marketplace, uh, a la the Airbnb reference. Um, there's a couple other important things, and uh, I'm happy to dive into each of it of why our business model uh, will be sustainable and successful versus some other subscription uh, businesses that have been out there. Well, you know, I'm curious about something. When you talk about the events business, you know, we come out of the music industry, and so we're obviously thinking in terms of the concert and touring, performance, even performing arts centers, all that stuff. That stuff all makes sense. But when you say the events business, and I, I can tell you're, t- and from looking at your website, I can tell it's a much broader thing than just concerts. And you said that when you were talking about some of the big players in the music space. What events are we talking about here? What are the big categories? Sure. So, so the number one is is the one you're referring to. Music, obviously, is the passion point for a lot of people in the live space, um, but it does go deeper than that. So, film as well. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a lot of a uh, lot of experience in the film festival world uh, that will also include um, films in e- exhibitors and actual movie theaters. Um, Additionally, food and wine festivals, um, it doesn't even have to be a festival per se, but food and wine events, um, just in the North America alone, pre, pre-COVID in 2019, there was about 9,000 um, food and wine events throughout uh, the U.S. And that could be anything as big as South Beach food and wine to Aspen food and wine, straight down to, uh, you know, kind of a local beer and brat uh, event, you know, in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, so that's on the food and wine side, but then also think sports and theater. So think Broadway, think traveling shows, think comedy, um, you know, whether it's uh, Dave Chappelle at Stubbs here in Austin, or it's a traveling um, Broadway show of, you know, call it Rent that is performing in Fort Lauderdale's Amphitheater. Wow. And you say sports. I mean, that's a whole category of its own. Are you talking about traditional professional teams and everything? Absolutely. So everything from college sports to professional sports to esports, uh, all, all the above. So we're we're uh, you know we're working with a bunch of uh, integrators and owners of ticket inventory to be able to provide a lot of that for our members. All right. Well, we're talking uh, late spring, early summer at this point, um, and we can't not talk about the the pandemic and how its impact has been on the live uh, business since uh, in the events business since that's the business you're you're in. Let's talk pre-pandemic. How has adoption been for Festival Pass uh, before this all came down? Sure. So what's what's an interesting uh, piece is everybody uh, uh, kind of looked at me a little crazy because we really just launched right before the pandemic uh, came to be. So it was really Q1 of uh, of 2020 that we really went to market and started uh, making it available to the general public. So um, pre-pandemic, we don't have a lot of data in terms of that adoption. Um, but what we what we did is we still continued forward in our um, in our approach and spent a lot of the pandemic building infrastructure, uh, data infrastructure, relationships, access to inventory, all the things that uh, are getting us ready to really explode on the other side of uh, you know what we call the roaring 20s that are coming. Right. Gotcha. So let me ask you another question. What indications are there that people want to subscribe to live events? Because mostly there's free events and then there's lots of ticketed events where you're paying per individual event. What what uh, indications are there that, that people want a different type of business model? 
Lots, lots, lots. Where, where, do, where do I begin? Um, so uh, first of all, at, at the core, we're a marketplace, right? So um, there's a lot of marketplace dynamics and, uh, that have really enabled consumers to have a better experience. Um, some of them are the obvious ones, uh, Ubers and Lyfts of the world. Others are things like Airbnb. Uh, and then you can even uh, apply it down to uh, Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats. Um, these are all marketplaces that by having one centralized place for a, um, a user to be able to come to with one login in one place and get a, a myriad uh, of, of items within a category has proven successful time and time again, especially for the consumer. Um, on the subscription side, there is a lot of, uh, a lot of data points that this is uh, what's needed in the marketplace for uh for the live event space, um, there's been a, a ton of um, arenas uh, over, you know, individually over time trying to build subscription packages. You can even think the old days of, uh, you know, we're talking sports, buying season tickets to a sporting event is effectively a subscription in itself. Um, a lot of those arenas have started to toy with how do I build a subscription just for my single arena? Um, and then there has been a lot of touch points in terms of even some of the music um, world where people tested different types of subscriptions, whether it was for specific venues or even specific um, groups of venues. Uh, and they've all been very, um, how do I say, uh, well adapted from the consumer side. Um, and there just really hasn't been a model that can approach it on a grand scale and actually make it something that uh, can scale to millions of uh, members and actually have, you know, tens of thousands of events they can attend. Yeah, that's that that makes sense. I mean, certainly from the Performing Arts Center, the kind of the, the cultural and nonprofit side of things, we've seen those types of venues doing subscriptions for a long time where they're almost saying, oh, well, you're the curator of my per live performance experience. It could be a dance series. It could be like contemporary dance theater or it could be music or it's a, it could be a combination of both. And, 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 the, and the, 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 the audience or the fan is saying, I trust your curation. Just bring me an experience once a week or once a month. I'm just going to go to the theater and be, um, you know, discover something that's that blows my mind or something like that. What's interesting about your model is it's it 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 kind of diversifies the options even more so because you're not uh, kind of wedded to a single venue or even to a single medium or a single discipline, right? So you're, you, you've got a subscription and you could go to a concert one week and a food event another week and a sporting event the next. Yes. Yeah. So absolutely. You, you've got it down. And the thing when you talk about the curation side, it's another thing that's been uh, very much lacking um, in the live event space um, is the concept of using data to create a recommendation engine and curate those live events. We see it time and time again in the um, in the filmed or television entertainment space, everybody talks about your Netflix recommendations. Um, we're building very similar concept, um, but doing it for live events. So every individual that's a member and logs into their Festival Pass account, um, of course, we, we will have thousands of live events they can go to and attend, but it's very difficult to kind of go through all thousands of events to choose the one you're going to go to. Um, we're, we're using um, pretty sophisticated data to surface 
the, the, the discovery of the things that, of course, that you've told us you like, but also the things you might not have thought about uh, that creates this discovery engine. So you might log in and say you like music and film and food, and you may, uh, by your own actions, have gone to look at ACL as a festival. You may have checked out a live event venue uh, in Austin uh, and seen a couple shows that were call it rock and roll shows. Uh, so now not only are you giving us information based upon your behavior, but you're also telling us what you like. So that information coupled with uh, other people on the platform and other people that you're connected to from a friend perspective will start to be able to surface, well, hey, I know you like that rock show at this venue and you went to this kind of festival. Uh, I bet you might also like this kind of movie, or you might also want to go to this food and wine event because you look and feel like 80% of the people we know that go to this food and wine event. So it creates this curation uh, and it really helps people discover things that they may not have been a part of before. And, and lastly, what, what that, the core mission of what that's all doing is it's creating community. Um, when people go to live events, they go to live events for that core concept of community but there's never really been a beginning to end platform that enables that community to actually carry um, pre-event and post-event. Uh, and that's what we're creating. Most of the ticketing world out there is very transactional. Um, most people don't care where they get their ticket from. It's just, did I get my ticket? Um, but we're, we're building a community, a membership community where people can actually discover things they can share uh, and they can find benefits for being part of this community of living life live. Awesome. Great. Well, now you've got me excited about this. I can totally see um, why I would be interested in something like this. Ed, we got to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your business model and how you're getting set up with events and uh, event partners and that sort of thing. We'll be right back. Sounds great. I've got big news. The Music Tectonics Conference is back. We're planning an experience like no other music industry conference with something for everyone. Whether you're calling in from the other side of the planet or you're dying to see the Music Tech family in person again. So mark your calendar for online events October 25th through October 27th and in-person events outdoors by the ocean in Los Angeles on November 2nd. Be the first to get more details about the conference and get notified when tickets go on sale on June 1st. Sign up for our newsletter at musictectonics.com and I hope to see you online in the metaverse and by the sea. All right, we're back with Ed Vincent of Festival Pass, and we were learning about his business model before our break uh, a little bit, but I want to get a little bit more into that. And I'm curious, that the challenge with subscription services, Ed, is you have to have enough choice for a big enough audience to want to opt in. And I'm curious, I, you know, obviously during the pandemic, things are a little wonky, but I, I'm sure you've got ideas in mind. How do you structure deals with existing events and partners? Sure. So that's a, a little bit of a loaded question because it, there's many different aspects of doing so. Um, but to give you uh, kind of the the core one that builds uh, inventory at scale, it's creating partnerships. Um, so we've created partnerships with numerous primary ticketing companies. Um, and uh, for, for those who are in the, in the industry, you probably know what I mean by this. So some people may use X ticketing company for all of their primary ticketing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's dozens of these ticketing companies out there, and there's a few that are larger than others. Um, so we're creating partnerships with them because a lot of these primary ticketing companies, um, they also want to provide help to their events that they already have as clients to be able to expose more and more of an audience to purchase those tickets. Um, so we've created API integrations uh, with 
many of these ticketing firms where we can pull in the inventory of the tickets that they manage uh, and provide them and offer them to our members. So that's one example. Um, other examples are directly working with venues or groups that own lots of venues in order to um, bring in this marketing channel uh, to expose all of their inventory to our members. Those are two key aspects. There's also a bunch of ticket aggregators, and there are also um, producers themselves, promoters, that their job is to gain more of an audience, uh, and they see um, what we're having and building as a membership audience to be a perfect place that they can market to to enable um, their tickets to sell through to people that are already uh, have already committed to be passionate about live events. So with, with the situation where you have APIs, where you're basically ingesting all these events, you have to have deals in place, I'm assuming, because you're selling subscriptions and the person that's getting the subscription is then getting free access to events that normally would be ticketed. So do you have to like price all the individual events? How do you, I mean, we have this conversation on the music streaming, the digital music side of things where there's this subscription that comes in and then there's these payouts to various rights holders and rights administrators and, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, those those deals all have to be negotiated. How are you handling that if you're ingesting that much content? Yeah, so so that's why um, we're doing it with individual uh, groups of people that access hundreds or, or even thousands of events with one deal. Um, so we are negotiating with these um, providers um, a level of revenue share. So there's a couple of things to think about when you think about the model is um, – the one thing we want to do is ensure uh, from a consumer value proposition side that our members are always, um, they're always getting value, right? So the first thing they're getting is they're never going to pay a ticketing fee on Festival Pass. That alone is a, kind of a, a big barrier or rub that's happened in the industry for a long time. Um, n- nobody nobody enjoys the experience, especially millennials and, and Gen Zs. <clears throat> to go to somewhere, buy a ticket for a hundred bucks, and then pay another twenty dollars on the way out for a fee. Um, it just it just has never been a, a pleasurable experience. So we're we're doing away with that. It doesn't mean we're doing away with the economics that will go back to the ticking company. We, we realize that we're not trying to replace them. We're just trying to partner with them to help them move more inventory. Um, so we figure out the economics to ensure we're not taking any revenue away from the ticketing companies, but it's the way it's presented to the user that creates the value. The second is um, we ask our partners for uh, a revenue share. So similar to um, any kind of performance-based marketing, the idea is that um, if we are moving these tickets to our members, um, we're acquiring that inventory for some kind of discount. So some people can call it a discount, others can call it revenue share, um, but we work with our um, partners in order to ensure we take a portfolio approach to it because there will be some events. You know, If we're working with one partner, let's say that has a thousand events, 20% of those events will be high demand. And therefore, in order to get the inventory, they don't want to really take uh, or give away a large revenue share on those high demand events. So we'll take a less revenue share on those in order to make them available to our members. However, 80% of their events don't sell out uh, and they would like more um, as somebody calls butts in seats or more availability to them, we'll take a larger revenue share or discount on those tickets in order to create a portfolio approach and a business partnership so that we have a, a an overall margin that's acceptable to pass along some savings to our members while at the same time uh, keep a margin to operate our business. 
Gotcha. So if, let me see if I've got this right. So you do deals with either the uh, the event producer or the ticketing company that says, look, we're going to bring you a certain amount of, of people to, to your events. You're not going to lose money on this. You, you could still, maybe for a popular show, they'll still get their regular kind of value that they'd expect for a ticket that'll pass through your subscription model and then you'll parse out the right amount of money for them. But you also say, well, if you're actually looking to increase the number of people so you have more full events and you can kind of respond to a kind of uh, variable demand, um, a certain amount of demand, then they can actually opt in to give you a further discount so you can open it up to more folks and you can also uh, cover the, your costs and, and make a little money along the way. Do I have it right? You do exactly, and there's also a couple of the key facts that make it make it very attractive. I mean, I meet with um, producers uh, as well as venue owners and and uh, and others that are uh, the rights holders of these shows um, often. And uh, the thing that's most attractive to them is that um, nobody likes to kind of let the general public know that we're discounting tickets because that kind of cannibalizes the idea of selling a full price ticket directly. Make right. sense? Yep. So. By us only allowing our members, um, so the only way people can access tickets on Festival Pass is you have to be a member. And on top of it, we're um, converting any kind of dollar price into credits. So that in itself also somewhat obscures what the discount actually is or what the value our members are receiving, because our members are only getting that by committing to a monthly subscription. So what it does for the venue owners or the rights holders is Nowhere on Google can somebody search, um, you know, discount tickets. Yeah, <laughs> discount tickets and find it 30 or 40% less that's not directly from their own website or their own uh, primary ticketing service. So, what that does is it really enables us to um, provide this membership um, and value to everybody. So, it's value to our members and it's also value to the rights holders because they can move more tickets but not cannibalize their full price tickets. Right. So if you step back from this, what it looks like, what you're actually doing is you're saying there's an additional market for the people who want to go to Artist X or Food Event Y. There's an additional market of people who want to go to events, but they don't know about you yet. They're not They're not saying, oh, I want to see Artist X or I want to go to this beer event or, or this barbecue event or, or something like that. They're just saying, show me some cool stuff that you think I'll be interested and I will go to it. And so you're adding kind of a, a new audience to their to their events. Yeah, that's part of it. And it's also the, the members that we have um, are increasing their velocity of event attendance oh, right. because of the simple fact that they're signing up as a member of Festival Pass because they love going to live events. They're going to go more often. And if we provide an easy way for them to do it and, and we provide an easy way for them to save and budget for their live event experiences, they're going to do more of it. And there's, there's a lot of uh, information I, I received from some of my past uh, business experiences that prove that out, that, that people that are already pre-committing dollars to something um, tend to utilize it more often. Um, you know, some people use the analogy of, uh, you know, jokingly, um, you know, it's a lottery uh, winnings or, or um, trying to use the example of like uh, airline points or whenever, whenever something exists, it feels uh, less burdensome to spend something you already paid for than it does to come out of pocket at that moment. Right. Yep. That makes sense. Cool. Um, so we talk a lot about, uh, we've talked a lot about live streaming during the pandemic, um, because obviously that was a big pivot in the music space. Um, 
And you're right in the midst of this. You're you're probably waiting waiting for all these events to come back so you can really uh, roll roll your business out at this point. Having started right before the pandemic, you're probably just getting ready, and then this all all started to shut down. So I'm sure you're keeping a very close close tabs on what venues and promoters and festivals and even audience members are are wanting to do as the vaccines finally are rolling out. How do you think things are going to change? What are you looking at for this summer, this fall? Are we looking at next year with uh, the rollout of vaccines and, 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 and certain um, social distancing norms kind of loosening up? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, in the industry in general, um, people are programming for the second half of 2021. And obviously, um, into 2022, it's going to be, you know, uh, many multiples of, of events. So, so the point I'm trying to make is that um, it's already, it's already coming back. Um, you know, people, we're seeing a lot of the venues that we know of, especially in some Southern states, whether it's Texas or Florida, um, are really already programming events. There's events happening as we speak right now. Um, and a lot of times, if you have an outdoor environment, it makes it easier to to create that social distancing and the comfort. Um, but I do believe um, as vaccines continue to roll out, um, they'll just be the uh, velocity of events will just continue to increase over and over. Even some of the big concert promoters that traditionally might run, you know, I'm going to pick a, a fake number just for uh, purposes of illustration is maybe they're managing 30 or 40 ongoing live tours for music at the same time, usually. Um, they're already programmed by the end of this year into 2022 to manage double that amount. Um, you know, call it 60 to 70 tours all running at the same time. And the reason is every artist uh, has been sitting at home for a year and they want to get out on the road. They want to tour. They want to make money. They want to see their their audience. And on the flip side, the consumers, um, the pent-up demand is so big right now to go to a live event. I mean, we see it just even our own membership and the chatter through our social. Um, you know, there's $1.3 trillion of savings sitting on the sideline for people that didn't travel, didn't go to restaurants, didn't go out to live events over the last year, and they're just waiting to spend that money. Here, here. I can feel that, man. I'm ready. I'm ready. Come on, let's go. <laughs> so we're going to take another quick break, Ed. And when we come back, I'd like to expand out. We've got a really good sense of your um, of your company and your model and where you're going. Really interesting stuff. But you've got an interesting background, and I want to apply it to some of the things that are emerging in the music industry and the music tech space. We'll be right back. Great. What's up, beautiful listeners? I've got a question for you. What do you want to hear next? Let me know at pages.musictectonics.com slash feedback. Suggest future guests and music tech topics you want to hear us cover and tell us how we're doing. Again, that's pages.musictectonics.com slash feedback. Look forward to hearing from you. All right, we are back. And as I said right before the break, um, Ed, you've got such an interesting background in event activation, data science, AI. Um, you, you've talked about using data to unlock monetization. I, I saw you've done some stuff in the blockchain tech world, in the world of film, TV, and media, and so forth. Drawing on that part of your career, I'm curious if you can help us here. What are some of the most interesting problems you see facing the music industry? Sure. Um, so there's twofold, right? So obviously I'm focused here on this business in the live event space. And, you know, I think what has, um, 
transpired over you know the last decade is the shift from you know most of the income for the music in industry coming from uh, recorded music and then shifting to flip where the the, the majority especially for the artists are, are coming from the live touring mm-hmm. um, so that that's kind of that obvious uh, trend that we've seen um, but there are interesting kind of shifts back even in the live streaming environment right so now that everybody started live streaming and we're not in the live streaming business nor do we intend to be from a production standpoint um, but we will eventually allow our members to um, watch a live stream within festival pass for a certain amount of credits uh, more likened to an amazon prime model of of viewing but the reason i bring that up from a revenue perspective is more and more uh, venues themselves and the artists are getting a portion or share of what that live streaming is going forward. So that's a, a little shift in that capacity. Um, there's other there's other aspects to um, marketing companies within the music space that continue to uh, come out. You know, there's a there's numerous call it competitors to platforms like Apple and Spotify that try to help independent artists market uh, their their own music. Um, themselves or through the platform uh, instead of going to a label um, that continues to expand. Um, and there are, uh, there's a couple of investors in my company that are also trying to figure out uh, truly the performance based model for using the digital space to drive consumption of music, um, but doing it in a way that doesn't require the artist or, you know, owner of the music to go out and spend large marketing dollars, but really to create a performance-driven um, marketing aspect that's been done for con- for direct-to-consumer products for the last five, 10 years. That is a very cool space because we are now at the place where distribution is relatively ubiquitous, right? There's lots of options for artists to get their music out there onto the streaming services, onto the social platforms, onto the video platforms and so forth. But the question is, just because you put it there, how are you going to get people to actually listen, right? And that's what you're saying. If you can use some of the same technology, some of the processes and some of the lessons learned in how consumer products have been marketed to drive those streams, drive those purchases, drive that engagement, that's unlocking the next level for the independent artists. Is that what you mean? I do, I do. And uh, what's what's interesting is even in our space, um, I say our space, but I mean more the financial capital space uh-huh. is over, over the last few years, there's been a lot of um, companies that have emerged that because of the ability to use data and analytics to track um, advertising spend, um, there's billions of dollars being made available for companies in order to use for growth marketing. Um, so instead of going the traditional route of uh, venture capitalists, um, there's plenty of access to capital for anybody that's transacting online. So whether that's in the music space, you're transacting per song or per subscription or whatever it is, um, there's lots of ways to use low-cost debt capital to get the word out rather than you know having to raise a boatload of money from venture capitalists. So basically, once you figured out the model of how to use advertising to drive revenue, and if that revenue is greater than the amount you spent on the advertising, you can use this type of debt capital to continuously make money off of it. Yes, yes. And this is one of the most exciting things about what we're doing at Festival Pass, even how we're financing it. Um, you know, I've been an entrepreneur for 20 plus years and, you know, I've, I've raised traditional venture capital. I've, you know, taken different types of debt in, uh, investments throughout various companies and, I promised myself uh, we'll, we'll see uh, 
every entrepreneur is that old uh, that old line that everybody's got a plan A until you get punched in the mouth. Um, <laughs> but uh, but our plan A seems to be working for us is um, the ability to leverage some of that debt capital for all of our growth financing because we're we know our KPIs when it comes to what does it cost to get a free user, what does it cost to get a paid user. Um, so on the consumer side. We know exactly how to scale our company from tens of thousands to millions of users, um, even using debt capital to do so. And that doesn't dilute our early investors. Um, and then on the flip side, we're also leveraging some of the, the new laws and regulations in crowdfunding to be able to actually go out and raise capital through our own members. So the idea our customers can become investors and our investors can become customers. Now, have you built a platform for that or are you using another platform to do that? Um, we currently are on Start Engine. I don't know if you're familiar. There's really three big platforms for crowdfunding: Start Engine, WeFunder, and Republic. Um, but we're using Start Engine. We just went live a couple weeks ago, um, and we're we're testing it out. But we're going to be one of the first companies to do an always-on crowdfunding campaign, meaning that um, it will it's not just go raise money for a few months and then that's it. Um, our our members will always be able to invest in the company. The difference is is you know every quarter the valuation will increase based upon the fundamentals of the business. Awesome. Well, that's that's really cool to hear about that unique model. And uh, man, you got a lot of stuff going on. I want to ask you about a couple other things in the music space um, before we wrap up today, Ed. This NFT thing is exploding. Do you have you been following it? Where do you stand on it? Uh, do do you think this is just a kind of a hypey trend, or do you think this is something that's going to continue to generate revenue for artists and keep folks engaged in a, a digital marketplace? Sure. So. I always find it interesting. Um, yes, I've been following it to, to answer your first question. Mm-hmm. Um, what I always find interesting is when specific terminology uh, becomes trendy for certain applications when it, you know, effectively already always existed. Um, right. <laughs> what I mean by that is um, the non fungible token is really just a, another form of blockchain and some form of a crypto asset, right? So at the end of the day, you know, We've seen it from the traditional um, cryptocurrencies that have existed. We've also seen blockchain as a fundamental underlying technology to manage lots of things. And the NFTs are really just a, a no, another explanation or version of that same underlying technology. Um, so to answer, I think your question is, do I believe in the marketplace of some of these NFTs, whether it's being applied to digital art or being applied to music as a form of, you know, ability for creators to monetize their, their work. Sure. Sure. It's a, it's, it's, it is a way for people to utilize an adoption of a, call it a currency, an adoption of a currency to an audience that is excited by it to get your product out. So, so under that world, sure, I, I get it. And I think it's interesting um, how we apply it back to what we're doing is we're, we're more interested in um, how we can apply certain branded tokens in the future to certain things that actually can be monetized um, for actual um, product. Meaning, you know, eventually we'll likely have a festival token of some sort that almost acts as, you know, uh, something of a rewards mechanism that allows people to use it to translate it back to credits to go to live events. Um, mm-hmm. We'll also look at, look at the blockchain for um, enabling different wallets to be shared within Festival Pass so that, um, you know, there's an ability for even venues themselves to have their own branded token that we would accept. 
so that there's a lot there's a lot to the blockchain space um i apologize if i'm kind of no go, going off topic on the, the no, particularly on the nfts itself but no no i think i think it's cool i mean it's interesting because the nfts you know you, you said hey this is like a another way of talking about blockchain and crypto assets it's also another way of talking about digital merch and it's also a, a way of talking about VIP experiences or fan clubs. I mean, it's it just kind of brings a lot of different things together. And you know, you don't even necessarily need cryptocurrency or blockchain to do a lot of that stuff. It's been done, but it hasn't always been done efficiently, and it hasn't always been super sexy. You know, people are like, "Well, I've got this digital merch. I've got a, a trading a digital trading card of some sort that doesn't do anything. It just it's kind of like." What what you know? What am I doing with this? Whereas I like how you're talking about it. Actually, becomes more like an actual token in the sense that it could either unlock things or exchange things. It's like a festival pass inside festival pass in a way. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, I, I do agree. Uh, I've um, maybe I'm too old school, but I always like I, I I understand the concept of created currencies, um, but I like when those currencies can be applied to real life things. Yeah, I dig it. No, I'm glad I asked you and I'm glad you went off on those tangents because I think it's totally, totally interesting and relevant because, I mean, you know, right now, even just the language NFT, I don't think that's a mainstream term that everybody's going to grasp or want to engage with. You know, it's like, you know, baseball cards were for people who wanted to collect baseball cards. But the underlying concept and the technology, I think once it becomes more more exchangeable in the way you describe and more um, uh, just more sticky and more gamified, then it becomes really exciting. It starts to unlock all these other ideas. That's the phase that I'm ready to see, you know, where you feel like it's engaged in something where, you know, 10 year olds are are involved with this the same way they were with Pokemon cards or or something like that. So I like, I like where you went with it. So look, you've got your festival pass, but I like to ask this question. It's a little bit of a a different spin. If you weren't doing festival pass and you weren't going to do festival pass and you wanted to start a music tech startup right now, what problem would you want to tackle? Well, I think I, I, I gave a little bit of insight into that concept of finding performance-based marketing engines, if you will, mm-hmm. that will you know kind of take away the needed expertise for every musician to be a marketer. Right. Um, meaning that what it, it's already been done for, for consumer-based companies. And I do think it's a problem that is solvable. Um, and at scale. Um, so, so if had I not done Festival Pass and I wanted to do something in music, uh, I'd probably look at some way to do that, to support a platform that really enables not only independent artists, but just even labels themselves, a proper way to create distribution around a performance-driven marketing concept. Cool. That makes sense. And and I had a hunch maybe you were going to go that direction, given what you said earlier. But let me ask you one more, and then we'll wrap up. This has been a blast, Ed. Are there any other larger trends in technology and innovation that you think people in the music industry should be keeping an eye on? Hmm. Let me think about that. Um, I mean, overall, I think the, the way to think about it personally is... Um, we always hear a lot about um, different age groups, right? Millennials versus Gen Z um, versus boomers. And and I truly believe, you know, the music industry always tends to be on the forefront, at least from a, an audience and a product standpoint, mm-hmm. to skew towards a younger environment. Of course, us old people can also uh, go enjoy our, uh, our bands that we loved in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. Uh, we can still enjoy that. But, but I do believe that the trend of millennials and Gen, Gen Zs are moving in this direction 
where the way they act from a financial perspective and the way they act from a social perspective is directly relevant to the way they act within different consumer products. What I mean by that is um, there's a lot of, um, you know, whether it's the Robin Hoods of the world where a lot of, uh, you know, young people are able to invest in, you know, things like GameStop or, you know, you pick, you pick the company that, that traditionally didn't happen 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, the, the fact that people like Ally Financial um, are a bank for millennials, um, they, they do things differently, really. So like the idea of um, the way millennials or, or Gen Z's budget for things, and that, that really plays into what we're doing. Um, they like to know that I'm going to put away $50 a month or $100 a month for my live events budget. And then I have $20 a month for my entertainment streaming budget. And then I have X for my exercise budget and X for my food budget. That's just ingrained in the way millennials and Gen Zs are thinking. So I use that as a broad approach to say those trends are prevalent in any company that doesn't move, you know, that, that old adage, go, go where the the puck is going to, uh, mm-hmm. um, meaning that I think any industry, including music, needs to think about how those consumers are already interacting with the rest of their lives. Interesting. So, so that does play into your interest in looking at the subscription model, because basically that envelope budgeting that you kind of described fits perfectly. You know what to expect. There's, you know, you don't have to make another decision about purchasing. It's done. Yes, I, I, I agree. <laughs> um, that is one of our one of our visions, but uh, but I do think it's applicable to any industry. Right. Oh, totally. No, no, no. I, I hear you saying it's a broader trend to keep an eye on. Awesome. Well, Ed, uh, did we leave anything out? Is there any shout outs you want to make before we wrap up? I've, I've really enjoyed this, but I want to give you a chance. Uh, obviously, people can check out Festival Pass online. Is there anything else we should say as we close here? Yeah, I mean, just I, I think everybody should come join festivalpass.com just as a free user. You don't have to pay up front just to, to be a part of it. And you could choose to join later as a paid member when you want to go to things. Um, in the investment worlds, if wanna, if anybody wants to support that vision, you can go to invest.festivalpass.com and check out how we're um, letting members or consumers or retail people invest now. Um, and then you know, uh, we're, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're about to launch a TikTok. TikTok uh, so you'll find us there as well. But come join us. Cool. Great. Ed, thanks so much for joining me on the Music Tectonics podcast. I really enjoyed learning about it. And I'm looking forward to keeping up with what you guys do and, and watching you become successful. Awesome. Thanks, Dimitri. All right. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We put out new episodes every week. Want more? Find it at musictectonics.com. You can dig deeper into this episode, learn about our annual conference, get the Music Tectonics app, and sign up for our newsletter. Musictectonics.com has it all. Also, look for Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. And connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, on LinkedIn. Peace. You're listening to Music Tectonics.